Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In a recent paper, The Unintended Consequences of Academic Leniency, Brooks Bowden, Viviana Rodriguez, and Zach Weingarten found that when North Carolina made its grading policies more lenient, not only did GPA for low-ability students not improve, but attendance for low-ability students worsened. Why? How do grading policies influence student effort and engagement? How should we think about academic leniency, especially after the pandemic? And why do some students respond differently to policy changes than others? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Brooks Bowden onto the podcast. Brooks Bowden is an associate professor at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania and serves as the director of the Center for Benefit Cost Studies in Education. Brooks Bowden, welcome to the report card. Thank you for having me. Okay, so Brooks, your paper, really interesting paper done with Viviana Rodriguez and Zach Weingarten, is The Unintended Consequences of Academic Leniency. So we're going to talk all about this paper, but first, right out of the gate, what do you mean by academic leniency? Well, just in very basic terms, that it's easier to make a given grade, right? So to make um, any opportunity for students to achieve an A or a B easier uh, than it was previously. And we hear about this all the time in a number of formats. Some are you know, back in my day, we had to read, you know, Shakespeare in the original Greek. I, I don't know how that works. But nonetheless, this is a little bit more looking at actual policies that have happened that led to leniency. Is that right? That's right. So in the paper, you say, in response to the widening achievement gaps and increased demand for post-secondary education, local and federal governments across the U.S. have enacted policies that have boosted high school graduation rates without an equivalent rise in student achievement, suggesting a decline in academic standards. Uh, I know a lot of people who are concerned about this. Can you give some examples of this phenomenon, or at least some of the signs that there might be a decline in academic standards? Sure. I think my interest in this area stemmed from, you know, we had this push toward high school graduation. And in the economics of education, we focus on the big labor market returns, both to individuals and society for high school graduation. And there was this big focus on dropouts. And one of the responses to curbing dropouts was allowing students to make up credits that where they had failed uh, in like traditional core sequencing And there was a lot of concern around credit recovery and credit recovery being um, something that really did not uphold standard or typical uh, practices and expectations for students. And the concern that students could then continue and progress through school without ever actually accumulating the skills and the knowledge that the system was was designed uh, for them to learn along the way. Like credit recovery is sort of the classic here, right? And I, right. I I did some work on this, looking at it nationally at its growth, particularly the online stuff. But to repeat back what I've heard here, the problem with credit recovery is, look, you failed a class. We don't want you to drop out of school. We don't want you to struggle to make up that failed class. So we'll give you an easier route to pass that class through credit recovery. And what critics will often say is, yeah, but you did that by 
not making those students meet the expectations, and then you move them further along. That's sort of textbook academic leniency. Am I getting that right? Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, we'll often hear curmudgeonly characters saying, yeah, you know, they're just being so easy on kids these days. But I mean, how big and widespread of a concern do you think the evidence suggests that academic leniency is? That's a great question. And I feel unsure. I feel like the evidence to date has been mixed. Um, However, since writing this paper, Uh, the response to this paper and what we've heard from people who are working in schools and talking to people on the ground uh, makes me think that that this issue is even bigger than I I thought uh, before writing the paper. Well, let's get into that paper and then we'll swim in those deeper waters in a few minutes. So (laughs) you did some work on North Carolina You looked at what happened when North Carolina changed its grading policies. That seems like states don't change grading policies that frequently. Tell us what happened in the background that set the stage for this paper. Absolutely. I think the most common grading scale is a 10-point scale. Like that's where you have a 90 to 100 is an A, you know, a 70 to a 79 is a C. Uh, It's very, you know, easy um, to know what's what. I think it's easy for students and teachers, and it's it's very commonly used. In North Carolina, um, a seven-point scale was actually the more common standard prior to 2014. And the seven-point scale meant that to pass a course, you needed to have a 70 Uh, whereas a 10-point scale would allow you to pass with a 60. So the big difference here is basically like an F on a 10-point scale is below a 60, right? And 60 to 69 is a D and so forth and so on. And in a 7-point scale, you just have a smaller window of what we define as an F. So an F in a 7-point scale is what? Below a uh, 70 and below? 69 and below. 69 and below. Gotcha. And so North Carolina instituted a change across the board? Yes. And they moved it to this 10-point scale. So when you went to look at this, you wanted to see what the unintended consequences were, right? Like that's the title of the paper. Yeah, let me add there because the unintended part actually came about as we developed more of the theoretical understanding and and the way that we um, looked at how students responded differently to the policy. So when we went into this paper, I really didn't go in thinking that we were going to have unintended consequences. I went in thinking that we were going to see students across the board um, having higher GPAs, students across the board um, engaging more in school. I thought we would see indicators of more effort across the board. We would see more learning essentially as a result. And let me just fill in the rationale and you tell me if I've got this right. My thought would be, all right, let's just assume everything else pretty much stays how it is, but you open up the scales so that a lower score than what would have qualified now qualifies for a higher grade, right? Like a 91 is an A now. So just sort of as a mechanism, if there's no second order changes, nothing else changes, then grades should go up, kids should feel a little better about themselves, and things should work out kind of beautifully. And also, North Carolina has this scale that's now 
pretty much standard. It's not like they're becoming more lenient. So those would be the intended consequences. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. And you compared two groups, right? So walk us through this. What was the control group and what was the treatment group? How do you set up comparisons in this situation? Oh, gosh, what a great question. So basically, because this is a statewide policy change, all of the students in the state um, in ninth grade at one time are affected by this policy change. And uh, the policy change also would then affect students going forward and then students who were in ninth grade previously, right? So like everyone at the same time gets affected. So what that means is that we need some kind of way to be able to say that students are essentially randomly uh, exposed to this policy change. And so to do that, we use the kindergarten assignment rules. So basically based on your birthday, um, you are allowed to begin school one year or you wait another year and then you begin school. So we use that school assignment mechanism with kids around that birthday threshold Uh, We use those kids as our comparison groups uh, where we have the children who moved through with the seven point scale because their birthday, um, they were just uh, old enough to be able to go into kindergarten and compare them to the students who were um, slightly younger, who were not able to go into kindergarten that year, who then went into ninth grade uh, in the fall of 2014 and were exposed to the, the grade scale change. So by just picking it right on either side of that birthday, you can look at kids who pretty much aren't that different except one experience ninth grade a year later after the grading change. Right. And we go to great lengths in the paper to demonstrate that. But yes, that's it. So uh, what did you find? The year the change was made, how did the change in grading policies uh, affect students? Well, one thing that we expected to see, which we did see, was an increase in GPA. So, you know, as you would think, as it's easier to make an A or easier to make a B, you would see an increase increase in GPA. And so we do see that. Um, What we also saw was an increase in absences and then flowing from absences is chronic absenteeism. So we saw these increases there. And, you know, these are two very different outcomes. (laughs) And really for us, it reflected this mixed state of the literature uh, where it was unclear about leniency and how students responded to leniency. That really pushed us to think about um, theoretical information around human capital development and like what the literature says thus far that drove us to think about maybe there are different responses to leniency and to something like a statewide policy change where we wanted to dig deeper. So the chronic absenteeism, that seems like a strange outcome to come from a grading change. Um, I mean, what's the deal, right? Like, why would absences increase? What's your theory? Well, I didn't fully understand it until we looked at this, you know, we call it heterogeneous, but you might say like just different student responses. So what we did there is we looked at students based on their prior academic performance. So we took eighth grade data and we split students into like a high scoring group and a low scoring group. 
this is a very like, you know, blunt measure. Um, we've tried it in several different ways, but the simplest one is the easiest one to really convey, but the results are, are consistent. And what we see is that um, the absences are driven by the students who had lower scores prior to ninth grade, so prior to experiencing leniency. Interestingly, among that group, we do not see a GPA increase, not even like the, the mechanical GPA increase. So that to me is a very consistent story of disengagement. Whereas with our high achieving or like our students with higher levels of achievement prior to ninth grade, those students, we do see GPA increase. And it is what we would expect, like mechanically based on, on the change. Um, so we see them experiencing those GPA increases, um, but that isn't the case for, for the other group of students. And so then that's where the story really pushed us to dig deeper and to think about the ways that students respond differently uh, and that policies, regardless of leniency, that the policies aren't often thinking about or policies don't seem to be crafted with this type of heterogeneous student response baked into the ways that, that policies are designed. So let's let's go back a little bit here because this is really fascinating, but it's also something that you kind of got to think about what you're looking at. So if GPA is the driver, and for some students I would say it is, and for some students I would say, no, it is not the driver, right? But if GPA is the driver, then um, you're changing sort of the categories on which you build the GPA. And so for kids who are trying to get that you know, 3.7, 4.0 range, they still have to hit a pretty narrow band. They get a little bit of academic leniency, but, you know, not a lot. For uh, for them, it seems to me that the GPA matters a lot, right? Like they're chasing, they have that goal, they know what they're doing, and they also know what a bad grade in ninth grade is going to do to them, right? So this is kind of your high flyers. And then if you look at kids who are in sort of the bottom half of the academic distribution, I think that if you ask many of them about a GPA, they would have a very different response, right? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not shooting for that 4.0. I, I'm not college, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, but it's, it's a distant thing. I'm not hanging a lot of value on each grade. And so maybe it doesn't matter quite so much to them in how these translate into GPA. And then you also, at the same time, this thing moves the scores for students who are getting a C sort of further down from where it would have been and D much further down. So they're seeing more movement. And so, you know, for lack of a better term, they have more room to slide without sort of losing anything. And so you can, you could see how it, it might mechanically hold for higher achievers, but for your lower achievers, actually gives them room to slide. So it actually affords more academic leniency to them. And so what did they do? They treaded water, which, you know, sort of from, from an economist perspective, sort of fits their incentives. Am I, am I getting this? No, right? I mean, you've got it exactly right. Like that's, that's just it. And it isn't, I think what the part that is most concerning to me is that I don't know that we see students treading water when we see them not coming to school more frequently, right? right? right when we right. see the absences going up and then we see that compounding over time, even it feels like 
My biggest takeaway is really like pushing us to think about this group of students where maybe we aren't serving them, right? Maybe school isn't something that they are super incentivized to uh, go to or to learn through or to perform in or to engage in or what have you. And I think that this paper is is really highlighting that very much in the ways that you just described. It's very logical, like when you think about those students' incentives and perspectives. Um, I would really like to see more policies uh, taking that into account. So did you see any effects on test scores? You know, not the ones related to what their letter grades in school were, but just on reading tests or math tests or any kind of state assessment? No. No. So we saw, you know, the GPA for the higher group go up um, or a GPA on average goes up, which is driven by um, our higher achieving students. Um, But we don't see that reflected in the math tests scores. So the higher achieving cohort, their test scores didn't change, but the lower achieving cohort, their test scores stayed about the same as well? We don't really see changes in test scores. Yeah, that's interesting because to some degree, one would think, well, you know, if kids are phoning it in a little bit more in terms of being able to get, you know, C's or D's with less effort, then we might expect to see that. Let me ask you about how much of this you think, and I know you can't answer this based on the data, but just from your gut, how much of this do you think is driven by the workhorse work and the show horse work? And by that, I mean, you know, in high school, you can, in a lot of schools, maybe this isn't the case in the great state of North Carolina, but I believe that in a lot of schools, you can kind of phone it in and get a C, right? It's just kind of like, just at least get your homework in, right? It doesn't have to be like, I'm putting in my utmost effort. Um, you know, make sure that you turn in your labs, make sure that you study some for your tests and you can get a C. And then the show horse work is, well, you really have to study for your test to get up to that A range. And I'm wondering if the lowered expectations for grades could be accommodated in less of that workhorse work. Like you just don't have to worry so much about a missing assignment here or there. Um, but you could still keep things up by learning sort of a modicum of what you're supposed to learn in the class and still get that passing grade. This would suggest that you can get lower grades without actually learning that much less. Am I just superimposing my own ideas on this or do you think there's something there? Um, based on what I have observed over time about test scores, I am not sure that there's something there. Um, I think standardized test scores are, uh, very difficult to move. And so it, it could very well be that what we're seeing is, something that we can detect in like the numbers of days kids are absent is something that we can detect through no change in GPA or a change in GPA, but maybe it isn't enough to show up to be able to be detected by a standardized test. More and more, I think we really need to think more holistically about student learning beyond just standardized tests. And so to me, this is just another piece of evidence in that bucket. Um, that thinking about engagement is really critical, thinking about learning, thinking about grades. Um, I, I don't know. So to me, this paper, I think, just is, a, is another uh, indicator for 
standardized test scores being, um, I don't know the word I really want to use. It's not like it's a, I don't want to say rough measure, but they're, they're not very sensitive. Um, let me ask you about a whole other part of this. When you talk about academic leniency, there's two sort of ways to think about it. This is a very official model of academic leniency. Uh, we from up high are going to change the scores upon which grades are made. I think a lot of people are more concerned that academic leniency just happens underneath, right? Like that the paper that would have gotten a 90% in, you know, whatever, pick your graduation year, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> it, it would, would, not, would get a 95 today, right? We're just rounding up and getting easier. Um, this doesn't capture that sort of academic leniency at all. Is that correct? Well, we we don't have any qualitative data from schools and teachers. Um, but what we do have uh, is some data on the ways that grades are stacked around letter grade thresholds. Okay, so what I mean is you can see... Um, the numbers of kids getting certain number grades increases up until you get to that letter grade threshold. Then it drops back down again. So it's like this zigzag function where you see more and more kids getting a 90, more and more kids getting an 80, more and more getting a 60, like way more getting a 60 than get, you know, a 78. <laughs> And so that kind of stacking suggests to me that we we do see teachers responding to these thresholds as they grade student work. Um, I think that that's also normal too, right? I think that that's an expected part of what we think of when we think about teachers grading and teachers um, implementing a, a grading scale teachers responding to student effort, teachers responding to what's on the page, right? I, you know, so I, I think that, that a lot of that is to be expected. We don't, in this work, look at the, the density or like the, the proportion of students that are sort of stacked at those thresholds beyond the time period that we're looking at. But that is an interesting question that you could probably explore uh, with data to look at to see if the numbers of students or like the proportions of students that are receiving an A is shifting over time. Like, is it, is that actually um, bearing out in the data? We don't necessarily see that in our paper, but again, we're just looking at a couple of years. So it, it could be something um, that could be explored for sure. And you say that stacking by the letter grade. So that works out again, so that you see more kids with numbered grades and the low digits on a 10-point scale. So you see a few 59s, but a lot of 61s. Is that correct? Uh, I think it's going to be 60. We see a lot of 60s, very like half 61s, and then very few 59s. At the 60 threshold for the D, it's like especially stark. But we also see the same thing at the 90 threshold, where we see a lot of students getting a 90, um, about you know 25% less getting the 91, and then about 40% less getting the 89. 
Right. So this could be that teachers are being more lenient. It could also be that students right there at the end of the marking period are like, what do I need to do to just get over the hump? Because that is all I'm trying to do. Is there one point of extra credit? Is there some, you know, yeah, absolutely. Not that I'm speaking from experience. Um, <laughs> um, so let me ask you about reversing this. We talk about the unintended consequences that don't look so great, particularly for the lower end students. Does that mean that the reverse is also true? Like we could just tighten this back up or tighten it back up even further. And would we expect that all of a sudden absenteeism would actually go down because we would be putting the screws to kids and that they would then respond? Does that make sense? Um, I, I don't think that we would see that. I, I don't. Um, I say that because this policy was a movement toward, as we already said, like something that is very typical, like a 10 point scale. Um, I don't have any indication that moving back to the seven point scale would benefit anyone. Um, it also is really pointing to this deeper issue around students who are at the lower end of the student achievement, you know, test score data, and that those students are disengaging in response to something like a statewide policy that we often assume that students are generally pretty oblivious to. And so to me, it isn't about this particular policy. It's more about like when we roll out policies like this or when we're thinking about leniency or being strict or whatever we're thinking about, I think we need to think more about how to support those students who are extremely likely to disengage from school, maybe in response to any type of policy change like this. Um, if we made it, if we made it harder for them to pass and if we made school, um, you know, more challenging for kids at the like very low end, like the kids who would typically be failing or passing like on that margin, I don't know that, you know, that we would see them engaging more. Um, so, you know, I think that what we're observing is a, is a point in time. And I think that we can learn from that. But I, I don't right now feel like we should then go to North Carolina and say, let's roll this policy back and go back to a seven point scale. Right. That certainly makes sense. Look, in the paper, you draw a distinction between these mechanical changes to GPA, right? Like you change the range, you're going to get some change. And changes due to student effort. Um, my question is, you know, how much of this do we think is student effort? I mean, how much of these changes at the top end and the bottom end are solely driven by student effort? And how much of them are just the settling of systems into, you know, sort of a new scale. Because to me, having read the paper, but also talking to you about this, it seems a little bit alarming. It seems like, well, student effort is not just fixed. Actually, it responds to things that we changed them. And you talk about how it led to absences some time ago. And I've been paying attention, a lot of attention to chronic absenteeism numbers now. And we are in a whole new world of hurt on that level. So the question about how much policy can affect students' effort that they put into school or engagement, I, I, I'm not exactly sure what the best way to say it, seems like a pretty important one. To me, that is at the heart of all of this. Um, if we can better understand student response to policy like this for these students, like these are the students that 
like where all of this discussion started, right? When we started talking, we started talking about high school dropout, high school completion, um, trying to increase uh, students' access and engagement with post-secondary and credentialing and other, other opportunities for them. And it's these students that we're seeing um, increase their absences or disengage with school. And I would say that that's a drop in effort. Um, you know, I think that the terms effort and engagement are intertwined enough that they're used kind of interchangeably. Um, it seems like a signal that students aren't being served by school. Like there's a, a large group of students potentially who are not really being served by school. And I don't think that that's new. You know, when we look back to what we know about the dropout crisis, you know, all the work that was done in the 90s um, and in the like early 2000s around students graduating from high school, what students are learning. I mean, this goes on and on for like the history of all time and education policy, right? Of like, what is education about and what are we doing and what uh, what do we need to ensure that students are learning and is school about work or is school about, you know, developing one's knowledge and mind? Um, and I think today this is how this is playing out, um, is that we may not have the dropout crisis that we had in the 90s, but we, we have this attendance issue and we have students disengaging. And at this point, I think that it's unclear what the labor market ramifications are, like what the long-term economic ramifications are for these individuals and for society. But we've been through this before, right? This like isn't our first time at the rodeo with this kind of situation. So I think we can expect that this isn't going to play out very well. And so by providing more support for students and trying to really unpack what school is and isn't doing for them, um, we could potentially shift some outcomes, shift some, you know, long-term um, potential for a large group of kids. Yeah. You mentioned the dropout crisis, and I think it's interesting because some folks would draw parallels to this situation. They would say, well, look, what North Carolina did was they said, well, actually, an A is now just, we're just going to give it for a lower score, right? It's okay. We're fitting in with everybody else, but now we're going to give A's for 90s. 91s, whereas before those would have been Bs. And a lot of folks, I think, would say, well, we have managed to stop the dropout crisis by fixing the numbers, but our test scores aren't really showing dramatic, certainly not increases in high school outcomes that are in keeping with the rising graduation rates. So are we actually becoming more academically lenient by just letting more kids graduate without meeting some minimum standard? I don't know that's the case. What do you make of that comparison between those two admittedly different situations? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's uh, that they're absolutely related just because of the the history of the way education policy has evolved. Um, I also think about, so there's, Another side to this is thinking about um, like another indicator of student learning is preparedness and engagement in post-secondary. Even in state litigation cases for funding for K-12 schooling, 
they're beginning to use things like uh, students' preparedness for community college, the need for developmental education um, or remedial coursework when students enter post-secondary as an indicator of uh, the need for more supports and and better uh, education, if you will, in K-12. And so that here um, is just another piece of this puzzle, right, as we think about better preparing students for life, part of that is direct entry into the labor market. Part of that is entry into post-secondary. The long-term goal of that is like a sustainable livelihood. Um, And if, regardless of like, if we're seeing it today with leniency and, um, you know, challenges that we're, we're seeing today that's reflected in this paper, or if we saw it 30 years ago and 60 years ago, right, with like high school graduation, it's all pointing toward the same thing of a concern about inequality for large groups of young people uh, in their potential of reaching this like self-sustainable, like what someone call like freedom in the long term. And so how do we, uh, as scholars, contribute to better policy and better systems to hopefully mitigate like some of those long-term negative outcomes? So to me, yes, I, you know, to get back to your your point from earlier, like, yes, I, I do find this to be uh, alarming. And when we first found these results, honestly, I was stunned. Um, and I was a little bit like, Oh my God, what are we going to have? Oh my goodness. Like, how are we going to get out there and say this? Because this is the magnitude of this is really serious. But for me, it's, it's, it really goes back to this long-term question of, of how do we best support students? How do we push systems to think more carefully about student responses? And in this paper, I think we do a great job of showing that there are like really different responses among students which, as you explained, can be very logically like thought through, right? There are really different responses among student groups uh, to different types of policies and to things like leniency that we really need to take into consideration. All right, Brooks, this is the report card. So now it's your chance to give some grades. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. Uh, first one, the letter grading system, A, B, C, D, E. Uh, okay, letter grading system, A. Why? I like, I really, really like that grades reflect effort and engagement and knowledge. Um, I think grades are a, a great opportunity to understand where students are. The four-point GPA scale. I mean, what, what's with the four-point scale? Why not a hundred-point scale? Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I'm fine with it, I guess. I haven't really thought about it. To be honest, I have zero answers for you fair, on the four-point scale. <laughs> I don't – I will say that when we have the four-point scale and it has become, like, this thing that's entrenched in, like, how we think about performance and how we think about – you know, aspects of student learning and engagement. 
when we start then adding all these like honor points and then we have like a six point scale or this, you know, ah, then that becomes like, then, then what are we doing? Um, so I do, you know, I have those kinds of uncertainties. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I'm really not sure. <laughs> Having teachers be the ones who grade their students as opposed to, you know, someone who's removed to grade students' work. Hey, I like teachers grading students. I don't think every teacher-student match is a good fit. Um, but I do think that writ large, you know, teachers are, they spend a significant amount of time with students. They are delivering a particular set of content that, might be very scripted, but in a lot of cases, it's something that that teacher has a heavy hand in designing and delivering and adapting for the students in that classroom. So I feel that, I mean, based on what I know and what I've observed, I like the teachers grade their own students. Uh, the volume and quality of cost analyses done by education researchers. <laughs> oh my God, that's a great one. Uh, oh, what's like a getting better shows improvement. Um, <laughs> oh man, maybe, maybe I'll be generous and say a B. I'll offer a little leniency. <laughs> and say a B. Uh, I think that there, uh, to, to give you some more thoughts on why, um, I mean, historically, like if we zoom out from the current time period, there's been so little consideration of the actual resources that are needed to support student learning, uh, that pretty much any additional work is better than where we were um, 15, 20 plus years ago. Uh, but where we are today is um, really, we're seeing this expansion in use, but we, we'd like to see a, a deeper focus on, on quality. The level of rigor in American public schools. Oh, and you want this like on average for all of them? Just <laughs> your gut grade. My gut grade. Oh, man. I don't know. Oh, um, somewhere between a C and a B. Probably a C is probably the fairest. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I have kids. The kids have been learning about clouds. For years, what is going on with the clouds? Like, somebody please, please out there, higher pay grade than me, please fix the situation with the clouds. <laughs> A specific ask. Oh, um, okay. Last one. Standardized tests. Ew, ick. <laughs> no. I think it's important that we have them. So wait, how do I say this? So I think it's important that we know how students are doing. It's important that we aren't able to just like gloss over our students who are struggling or our students who are learning English, uh, who are, you know, from vulnerable homes. I, I think we really need to make sure that we are capturing uh, their interests in our policies and in our school system. But as I said already, the standardized tests 
I think are really failing to capture learning. They certainly standardized tests don't map on to like long-term economic outcomes. So somewhere in this situation, we're missing some really important information. In a lot of my work, I work in early childhood and the early childhood tests are like, it's a, it's a mess. Uh, so, Ooh, I'm just going to have to maybe go with something really bad, like a D. All right. Like I want it to be there, but we aren't there yet. I think. Fair enough. Let's get back to the unintended consequences paper. So this work predates the pandemic. Um, since the pandemic, I think there's a lot of folks who would say, you know, we've probably let some things slip during the pandemic. Obviously, during the heart of the pandemic, there were clear reasons for that. Since then, we've seen some indicators, learning loss um, is suggestive of this. Chronic absenteeism is a major issue. Are you sympathetic with folks who are worried that there's been a drop in rigor because of the pandemic that will be hard to dial back up? I don't know if it's something that comes with seniority or if it's the way that I was trained, but I feel like I see the history of the field and the way that this is such a persistent issue of the need to better support students that I don't necessarily think that today is any different um, than the issue has been over over time. But that's taking like a very zoomed out view, right? And I think that people who are working in schools and who are closer to kids today have, you know, every that, you know, they're, they're closer to what's going on with kids in classrooms today than I am. So I, I trust their need to respond, their concern. Um, I think that from the policy perspective, like the federal level, there's been a huge influx of support, um, which is now like uh, many districts are facing this like funding cliff where that federal support is going away. And there's a lot of uh, concern there about like, well, how are we going to keep doing these wonderful things that we've created from the ESSER funds. Um, so in some ways I can see and understand the concern. In other ways, I think maybe I'm more jaded, right? Like I, I think I see the issue and the issue has been so persistent and consistent across time that it's, if this is what it takes to get people to see students more holistically, if this is what it takes, like then, then yeah, let's ride this wave. Like let's get more supports for students. Uh, but I, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I'm not sure that what we're seeing today is any, is that dramatically different from what we've seen. At so yeah. earlier you said that after you put out the paper, you had gotten a lot of feedback and that feedback made you think that this problem was actually more pointed than you had thought going into it. Can you just flesh that out a little bit? What has that feedback been like and what have you learned or might you have learned from it? Yeah, I mean, if I can be specific. Um, so the New York Times contacted me um, and that was really exciting because uh, the person that I spoke with has been in contact with people in schools and with different types of stakeholders all across the country. And so in speaking with her, I was able to hear about these different conversations and 
different concerns that she had heard. And she herself, from hearing those things, was extremely concerned. And that made me take pause. Um, And I definitely have, like, since then, noticed more and more of these headlines demonstrating, like, something approaching panic about, you know, what students, uh, how students are engaging in school, um, students not attending. And it seems like we are seeing, again, this, like, big influx of news around attendance and absenteeism. And so, you know, I it's like the ebb and flow of any type of events or news or uh, <laughs> I keep thinking about like, um, like the old Tayac and Cuban work and like, you know, these are things that, that come and then they're like less prominent and then they come back again and then they're less prominent. And so I think we're in a moment where the pandemic really highlighted these issues and based on what we see in this paper, some of this, this, you know, urgency could be that there are students in the lower end of the distribution uh, of like prior academic performance, or it could be that students who are highly vulnerable, like maybe they're disengaging in school in response to having been through the pandemic. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, But this paper would certainly point to that being a a potential. So we have teachers who listen. And I wonder how you would talk to teachers about these things. I mean, how should they think about adjusting the way they they grade students? How, how should they think about their role in terms of academic rigor and leniency? This is such a, a, an interesting question. It's one that's hit home with me as an educator. It's one that um, I've had other people telling me, oh, we shared your paper with our college because we've been discussing grading practices. So I think what I would advise teachers to do based on what we saw in this paper is to be clear, um, to make the grading scale clear for students, to make expectations clear for students, and then um, to like look for signs of disengagement or to look for opportunities, um, maybe the flip is like to look for opportunities to engage students in their learning and in their work in class. I mean, this, this would be really interesting to actually like study going forward, but are there ways to like better incentivize engagement and better incentivize student learning in the classroom, are there ways to make students feel more um, connected to what's going on in the classroom? I think that those are all interesting questions. What about in terms of academic rigor and in terms of just strictness? I mean, should teachers be stricter? Well, I don't know that we're benefiting anyone if we are extremely lenient. So by that, there doesn't seem to be any indication that we should be giving a student a B or an A if the student really has failed. Um, Part of what we heard uh, in both through talking with the New York Times that I mentioned, but also through talking with others is that we've heard a lot about these um, required grade minimum thresholds where 
We're hearing about teachers that are in systems where the teachers are not allowed to give students a zero or less than a 50. And that they are uh, like there are some other like, you know, incentives being placed on teachers. And I think that those are, you know, obviously difficult situations. But it doesn't seem like it either would benefit students who have earned a C to get an A or that it would be fair to the students who've earned a B or an A for then everyone to just get an A. Right. So, I, you know, I think that there's multiple aspects here to this. Um, maybe the clearest recommendation I have for teachers is to be clear and to just be thoughtful about the ways that students might respond differently to the grading scale that you have uh, provided to them. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that there needs to be a very stark differentiation between supporting students and being lenient to students, right? So you can take the pandemic for the example. We know that test scores show that kids are further behind. You know, there's some ground to make up. That's going to require some supports for students. Indeed. The easiest way to support them to move them forward is to lower the bar. And that seems like the, 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 the worst thing to do. And this paper seems to show from an admittedly removed perspective that well-intended policy changes can have negative impacts, particularly on those who need the support the most. And that seems particularly compelling and, and also timely. Yeah, I agree with that. That was a great characterization. So, Brooks, what is next in line of this? Do you have additional work on academic leniency that you're looking into? So less on leniency, but more on engagement. Um, So a lot of my work is around um, how we think about students engaging with school, how we think about student learning and developing uh, through and in school, and the ways that we can effectively provide additional supports uh, for their learning and development by partnering with parents and caregivers, with um, external uh, community organizations or other governmental agencies. And so I'm doing, uh, my next work is uh, really focusing on how we think across sectors for our most vulnerable children and providing support for them to increase their engagement in school. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Brooks Bowden. We'll include a link to The Unintended Consequences of Academic Leniency and some of Brooks' other work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 